1: In the late 1980s, the UK was in the midst of its second summer of love, where massive yet illegal warehouse parties and days-long outdoor raves swept across the country. It was a hedonistic summer fueled by the sun, drugs, and the psychedelic sense of freedom in the air. Country fields and abandoned buildings in cities like London were filled to the brim with young people hungry to experience it all. But for Uday Badwaj, his summer of love was just out of reach because he was living in a boring suburb called Northwood, 20 miles outside of central London.
2: I mean, as a teenager, it was deathly boring. And also being gay, you know, I wanted to find my people.
1: Northwood is the kind of place families with money might move for good schools and an easy commute into the city. But there's something about growing up next to a big city that makes you long for a life on the horizon. Uday could see the silhouettes of the city's skyscrapers and hear the echoes of a life bigger and brighter than his own. He yearned for life in a city where people danced from dust until dawn and found themselves on dance floors. But that freedom, that life, was just out of reach for now. Uday longed for hot, sweaty nights in dark clubs and euphoric moments under twinkling lights. Soon as he was old enough, he left the suburbs and moved to the city, London. There he found the life-changing magic he'd been searching for at a venue in London called Turnmills. During a club night they had there called Trade.
2: And the biggest memory I have is coming down those stairs and hearing that hard house bass line pumping through the club. And I was like, yes, I'm home.
1: Today, Uday still lives in London. He's a super animated, fun-loving, wild, outspoken person. When I talked to him on Zoom, he was wearing a super colorful short-sleeved shirt and just fully present. He's a type of person that gets super passionate. Like so many of us who grew up in small towns where people don't get us or understand who we are, Uday moved out as soon as he could.
2: And I can totally relate. I was very shy, I was very insecure. I think being an Indian and being gay and being in a very white environment, I was all, never had the confidence to pick up anyone or talk to anyone or uh, in like in a romantic or sexual way.
1: He began studying at the London School of Economics. He was a typical student on the first leg of his journey into adulthood. But it was away from the classroom at night when Uday would spring to life. In London, he had a chance to find himself.
2: I was a university student, went to, we wanted to party all night.
1: And of course, like anyone single his age, he was looking for love, friendship, and community. Something nightclubs have been giving people across the globe forever. Uday started going out to clubs in 1990. At that time, there were all sorts of gay clubs and Uday was more than ready to check out everything the London gay scene had to offer. Most nights he'd meet up with a group of friends for drinks, then together they'd walk the darkening streets of London to their favorite regular club. But one night something
2: caught Uday's eye. They were handing out flyers outside a club called Heaven that we used to go to and at that time Most, all the clubs shut around three o'clock.
1: This club was open later than other clubs. The flyers were for a night called trade. Trade flyers were nondescript with only black text, but direct and straight to the point. First ever legal all night dance club in England closes very, very late and dance at high temperatures to the hottest mix masters in town. The club was located at a venue called Turnmills, just north of where Uday lived, went to school, and partied. Uday looked down at the pamphlet in his hands.
2: We took the flyers and decided to go check it out.
1: Term Mills was a large, cream-colored, rounded Victorian building set on the corner of a busy road in the area of Clerkenwell. Back then, the area was pretty run down, with burnout buildings but it had a main draw. The historic market, Smithfield, selling meats, poultry, and cheese to London's restaurateurs. But yeah, aside from that, picture a bunch of derelict buildings, quaint cobbled streets, and an area that's pretty dead at night. But back to Uday. It was nearly four in the morning and Uday walked for 30 minutes to get to the club. Cause this is
2: serious business. It was really close to my halls of residence, so it was on my way home anyway. And I remember going there, and I saw a friend of mine who worked in one of the gay bars going in saying, oh, just come in with me.
1: Uday didn't have to wait in line or pay the cover. We all know what that feels like. It's like you have entered the kingdom. And the line energy is where it's all happening. Because when you walk up, not paying a cover or waiting in line, everyone wants to know, well, who is this? Who's that person? There's an immediate sense of pride and immediate sense of belonging that happens. This was very, very serious for him. Uday walked inside and there they were, the stairs. They curved as you went down them and there were a lot of them.
2: We call them the stairs of truth.
1: Uday grins from ear to ear when he talks about those stairs. They weren't just stairs into the club where he'd become a regular at. They were stairs into a life forever changed. He still remembers this moment decades later. Everyone has that memory. That thing that instantly catapults you into that place in time.
2: These steep stairs that came down, they were the stairs of truth for two reasons. One, because... If you were trying to hide how high you were coming down those stairs, you always gave it away because you'd stumble and slip and grab onto the walls because they were so slippery. And also we called them the Stairs of Truth because you'd pick up some hot guy on the dance floor and then when the club finished, you'd go upstairs and every step you took towards daylight, that person aged by 10 years.
1: But even though the stairs exposed you and everyone around you, it was worth it trade was unlike any other place. The main dance floor was filled with tons of people, maybe a 1,000 at the most. Lots of guys with their tops off, women moving their heads in unison to the beat, a wide array of people of different backgrounds, lasers everywhere. The lasers were huge. I mean, this was the come-to-Jesus moment in this club. As you swayed across the dance floor, Bright-colored banners with the word Trade written across them were above your head. The music was bass-driven and uplifting and sexy.
2: And it was almost like a spiritual experience.
1: Uday loved Trade. He became a regular. The place helped him find his people. The warmth he so craved and a sense of belonging, he struggled growing up in that quiet, well-to-do suburb of London. But at Trade, He collected a treasure trove of memories, ones that would define his life. That's the kind of place trade was. One night in particular sticks out.
2: And I was on the dance floor with my friend Joe, and I looked over at her, and she was like crying, like those tears pouring down her face. And I was like, what's wrong? And she would just look at me, and she just went, we're never, ever going to be this happy again.
1: (laughs) There they were. Young, happy, and dancing to the music that pulsed through the club. Vibrating the walls, vibrating their bodies, nothing else mattered.
2: Actually, I reminded her of that a couple of years ago and said, you know what, you were right.
1: (laughs) From London Audio, iHeartRadio, and executive producer Paris Hilton, this is the history of the world's greatest nightclubs.
3: Let me open up your world
1: a 12-part podcast about the iconic venues and people that revolutionized how we party. Some of the world's most legendary nightclubs were known for the unique community they welcomed, others for the cultural movements they started, and some for the musicians and DJs they introduced to the world. The best nightclubs champion new music, transform lives, and provide an escape from life's pressures. One more thing. This is the history of some of the world's greatest nightclubs, not a ranking of every club in the world. It's an exploration of the spaces, people, and club nights that made a lasting impact on nightlife and music today. Let me open up your I'm your host, Ultranate. I'm a singer, songwriter, musician, and I found my purpose in club culture. This is episode three, Trade at Turnmills, London. Let
4: me open up your
0: world. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free.
5: course
0: our best smartphone deals your choice of plan learn how to get the new samsung galaxy s24 plus with galaxy ai on us with eligible trade-in at&t connecting changes everything offers vary by device subject to change s24 plus 256 256GB offer available for a limited time terms and restrictions apply see att.com slash samsung for details
1: while uday and his friends were dancing carefree at the bottom of the stairs of truth There was a lot going on in the UK, both politically and socially. The 90s, the London queer club scene, for starters, was pretty fragmented. Everyone was kind of in their own
2: camps. So, like, at that point, you had the Colherne in Oscorp, which was where the leather scene, the older guys went. The Colherne Arms was
1: a popular landmark for the queer community to congregate and meet on the west of the city. The leather scene is essentially a look. Guys and lots of leather, of course, but also edgy with a sexy fetish vibe. So that's one scene, and we all love our leather fetish scene look. So of course, I've worn that, and I love it. It's lots of fun, and it's fantasy. From there, in the center of the city and the bright lights of Soho...
2: There was what became JY Bang was where there were little young twigs and Heaven as well, which is sort of Twinkie, like people who were into pop music and lots of sequins and lycra. That was Soho. The queer people of color, they had like their own thing. We had Club Kali for, for South Asian gays.
1: Club Kali used to move around the city, taking over venues, curating their own brand of South Asian gay fabulousness.
2: There was a Fridge in South London, Brixton, and there were other clubs for Black people who were queer. There were clubs for everyone. But they didn't seem to mix very
1: much. If you were gay and went out to clubs in London during the early 90s, it could feel a bit clicky. You just went to the club for your group or your scene. And that was kind of it. And in addition to the dynamics of the scene, the UK wasn't accepting in the way that it is now. Around this time, a new law was introduced, known as Section 28.
2: Now the rest of the news. The government is to ban the promotion of homosexuality in schools.
4: I obviously don't want children taught that the gay and lesbian lifestyle is natural or normal. It is not, it never has been, and it never will be. Children who need to be taught to
3: respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. I mean, this was the time of Thatcher's Britain and a deeply conservative government who in 1988 brought in Section 28, which was a bill
1: that effectively suppressed and silenced queer people. That's Kate Hutchinson. She's a journalist who writes for The Guardian and the host of The Last Bohemian's podcast. For example, prohibiting teaching about homosexuality in schools and stopping local councils from funding gay initiatives. So discussing same-sex relationships in the classroom, among other things, was effectively illegal. Section 28 was law for over two decades until 2003. But while the law was in place, many within the gay community were frightened. In fact, Many gay clubs had blacked out windows to protect themselves from outsiders. Plus, at this point, the age of consent if you
3: were gay was still 21. So this was Britain in the late 80s, early 90s, where it was
1: essentially dangerous to be gay. Yep. So the age of consent was higher for gay people than straight people. It's truly shocking and extremely disappointing. Let's stop for a moment and appreciate how difficult a time it must have been in 1990 when kids like Uday were first out on the scene. It wasn't just a scene spread out across different clubs and communities or the nightmarish authoritarian legislation targeting gay citizens in the UK. There was more. When
3: trade started
1: in London, the AIDS crisis was raging. AIDS was devastating the community no one could escape it.
5: My name is Susie Krueger. I am an American living in London since 1990.
1: She runs and promotes fetish clubs and has been doing it for decades. Susie is an American from the East Coast. She remembers what it was like at home in the States before she moved across the pond for a new life.
5: Coming from America, where people were dropping dead big time, you know, starting in the mid-80s up until then, and it hadn't really hit London until maybe 92, 93, and then it sort of took its toll here. Homophobia, which was quite big here in the 90s, and, um, and with the HIV, sadly, it was starting to take its toll on people who were getting sick and dying.
1: It was a time we now see depicted in shows like Angels in America and The Normal Heart, and most recently, the miniseries It's a Sin which really shows what life was like in London and the UK for the LGBTQ community at around the same time as trade opened.
2: AIDS was a death sentence. And it was this sort of sword hanging over your head if you're a gay man in London.
1: A young Uday never thought life would be what it is now. And back then, everyone needed an escape from the horrors of it all.
2: It was almost like, We need a space where we can go and just forget about our problems and just dance, just have a good time, just be hedonistic and not have to think about it.
1: I remember clearly when those moments were happening here, in my neighborhood in Baltimore. Many many friends in my collective passed on, many talented, young, beautiful Black men, and it was devastating and awful. There were so many unknowns. Susie wanted that escape too
5: to just forget all about that and come together and enjoy the eight or nine hours of music.
0: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller? I had to buy three identical sweaters to get the fourth free. course our best smartphone deals your choice of plan learn how to get the new samsung galaxy s24 plus with galaxy ai on us with eligible trade-in at&t connecting changes everything offers vary by device subject to change s24 plus 256 256GB offer available for a limited time terms and restrictions apply see att.com slash samsung for details
1: music has a way of healing someone's soul There's nothing like getting lost in the rhythm of your own body and moving to the beat. The queer community in London was in need of a safe space. In the 80s, he'd been in a band called Big Bang, and then he became a club entrepreneur. Kate is talking about Lawrence Malice, the man behind trade. It was his baby. Lawrence is an extremely charismatic guy of Irish heritage and a former electronic musician, pretty well known as one of the city's party entrepreneurs. Kate interviewed him for The Guardian. He was always wearing a sharp suit and maybe a trilby. I think if you dedicate
3: your life to running round-the-clock parties, you've got to be someone with tenacity, with a larger-than-life personality, and above all, great stamina.
1: Lawrence had been involved in the club scene for years, and he had a strong desire to shake things up.
3: Lawrence Malice effectively wanted to create what we would now call a safe space in nightclub form. He wanted an escape that took aim at shame and was unapologetically hedonistic.
1: Lawrence also wanted to help dismantle homophobia by connecting queer and straight people during a time of division. That thing we were talking about earlier, how there were so many clubs, but all with their own scene and separate community. As a former musician, Lawrence had a vision for new sounds. He also found a gap in the clubbing industry. In London, all clubs closed at 3 a.m. It's the reason why Uday was interested in trade the night he was first handed a flyer. Lawrence worked with Turnmills to secure a late license, which allowed the party to go even later into the night.
3: Trade was the first legal after party. So it was the first party that was advertising itself as starting at 3 a.m., going on all day, you know, that you could come along to. So... You know, there were other parties at at terminals before then, but this was the first party that was really kind of maximizing and making the most of that 24-hour dance license by offering a party that went on at a time that, you know, wasn't the usual.
1: Trade opens in the fall of 1990, and it was an instant hit. In fact, not long after.
5: The queue to get in would be like three hours long. Yeah, it was very ethnic diverse there was no uh, color barrier or anything it was all, all sorts yeah definitely diverse
1: trade was for everyone and they all wanted the same thing the freedom to dance the night away at the city's first late night venue
5: the rest of the clubs emptied out then everyone would get there and the queue would be massive massive they'd have special events like the birthday and gay pride they would always sell out I think the code check had a number of meltdowns, but that's always a bane of any club. So a uh, club promoter's existence is bloody code check. I'm sure there was always a meltdown with that. or people just not getting in.
1: You have to remember that before that, if you were partying after 3 a.m., it was an illegal rave party or a squat rave, and your night could be ruined at the drop of a hat once you heard the sound of a police siren. With trade, it gave people the freedom to party and it created a ripple effect in the scene. Before trade's grand opening, the UK's second summer of love was coming to an end. It was a time when hundreds of people took over random fields across the country and through wild illegal parties. Trade filled a void as the government clamped down on these parties. Here's Kate again. When
3: trade started and became super successful, loads of other after-parties started up, like at clubs like The End and Fabric, and suddenly London just became this 24-hour party capital.
1: But even if London was blowing up as a party city, trade remained unique. People partied and they partied together.
3: But Lawrence and the DJs that played at trade, like Smoking
1: Joe, you know, they talk about the club's inclusivity this blending of people was intentional. You'd get
3: queer people there, straight people, trans people, celebrities, all mingling together. And in fact, it didn't even really
1: matter if you were famous at the door. Trade attracted celebrities, including Madonna, Bjork, Kate Moss, Rupert Everett, and Alexander McQueen. The club had two main policies. There wasn't a VIP area, and celebrity entourages were not welcome. What got you through the door was a unique and open attitude, a vibe, a warmth, even. Here's Uday.
2: I remember going in and seeing, oh, that's cool. I'm going downstairs and being blown away by how diverse it was. I don't just mean sexually. I mean, like ethnically as well, like coming out of the gay scene for me, the club that I was, I knew about, that my friends were going to, they were very white. Walking into trade, like, you had every type of person there. And that was great. That was really amazing. It was trade that made Uday realize something. All these places I've been going, like, I've always been the only person who's not white in the group. To the extent that I remember, there were only two other South Asian gay boys on the whole scene that I knew at the time.
1: Uday had been out on the gay scene for about a year and a half at this point. And...
2: Trade was the first place where I first kissed a guy. Trade was the first place where I had a date with somebody. And so I've got really good memories of it because I just felt, it just felt like a safe place for everyone.
1: The connections Uday made there were life-changing. The music changed his life too.
2: It was a new sound. It was like uplifting, but sexy and bass-driven and... Like, everybody was smiling. Like, everybody, everybody was having a good time.
1: Susie remembers so vividly what it was like entering trade at Turnmills for the first time.
5: So, Turnmills, if you, you go on these steps, right, and right in front of you were some steps, you went down, and there was, like, a cafe bar with a restaurant. So, you went back to the entrance, you went to the left, you went down three steps, and there was a pay desk. They went down a flight of steps, and there'd be the toilets. And when you got to the bottom of the stairs, again, on your left side was like a sitting area where they were serving drinks, you know, tables and chairs to the left, small area for drinks.
1: It was a large, sprawling space, unwieldy even.
5: There was some alcoves, and everyone used to sort of hang underneath these alcoves. So that would be the bar area, which is probably like six or seven meters. Then you hit the dance floor. So on the left was a DJ box. In front of you was the dance floor area and then like a walk around, you know? So people used to dance on that and then on the dance floor.
1: Susie shares the menu for the night, how the hours were cut up to create a mood or heighten an emotion. It was blissful and it took you on a journey. So time-wise...
5: The first three hours was like a chunky sort of house music. It was chunky and slow and really funky. And then by seven o'clock, it started to get an edge. And then the music just got harder and harder and harder and blew your head off. And then I think by like 10 or 11, then Tall Paul used to come on, which was the owner's son and he'd lighten it up a bit. It was insanity. Oh my God, the music was insane. Just really insane. Ian M was a DJ trade who played the techno and the hard house. Tony Devitt, who became very famous, made lots of records, and he was a techno hard house. Yeah, his sets were just unbelievable.
1: When Susie talks about trade, you can tell she's transported right back to that dance floor.
5: The DJs prior to Tony would come on at seven or eight would be Smoking Joe. Susie effortlessly
1: reels off so many of the DJs, as if she's partied there last night.
5: Daz Sound, Trevor Rodcliffe. I mean, Daz Sound and Trevor Rodcliffe played together. And as the music sort of used to work its way into the harder sound, they would play music that was quite edgy. And then the other DJs would come on and just out, Yeah, it was great. I'm
4: Ian M. I used to be a DJ down at Trade, at Turnmills.
1: Ian is a DJ from the Midlands. He played at Trade for eight and a half years. Ian is the kind of DJ that has thousands of vinyl records lined up in his office. Before becoming a DJ at Trade, Ian used to be a clubber there. It's the place where Ian went to discover hot new music.
4: The music was different. We was hearing music we'd not heard before. It was a cross-section of all sorts of styles. That was the best thing about Trade. It went from house, American house, uh, techno, and then it went into a bit of hardcore.
1: Soon after that, he was offered a one-off gig at a club night Trade put on outside of the capital. After that, Ian was immediately hired to play regularly at Trade's London Turnmill spot.
4: I just went down there the following week and... Uh, Ended up playing a set. It was after Tony.
1: Tony DeVitt was probably the most famous resident DJ at trade, who produced highly successful dance hits like To The Limit and Burning Up. He contracted HIV and later died of bronchial pneumonia and bone marrow failure in 1998. He was loved. Susie mentioned him earlier, if you remember. Ian m loved playing a set right after Tony because he had the crowd going wild. Ian took over the DJ booth at about
4: 10 o'clock in the morning.
1: Yep, that's 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It was kind of like their own church service, a spiritual service honoring trade. E&M went on to play for almost a decade at trade. It wasn't just the vibe, the crowd and the forward thinking music that was great. It was the design that hit you too.
5: Their logo was a trade baby, like a young guy with a dummy in his mouth and that was their logo with hair sticking out it was called trade babies
1: a dummy is a british word for a pacifier
5: and so they'd have a lot of those hanging around like that they had banners everywhere
1: another standout element was the lighting the lighting was the thing
5: they had like these phenomenal lasers that went above your head over that dance floor when you went down the steps they turned the lights on and put the lasers on which is amazing
1: Just like Ian, Susie credits Trade for her career. Her life transformed after partying at Trade.
5: That sort of springboarded me into my connection to the club scene, to be honest. So, you know, I met lots of people then. I got other jobs in other clubs.
1: As Trade's success grew and London nightlife was shifting, by the mid to late 2000s, the drugs people were taking were different.
5: Ecstasy was a big thing and it was really good and really clean. And then, you know, ketamine, there was a lot of ketamine use. We used to take uh, microdots. So we took acid then and it yeah, just the drugs evolved to this G.
1: G, as in GHB, a synthetic party drug that can make you feel relaxed and social, but can also cause amnesia and more serious symptoms related to unconsciousness and respiratory collapse.
5: That just changed people, and it wasn't lovey-dovey, and it didn't really go with the music, I think.
1: GHB Liquid was relatively new back then. People often took too much, and they'd be collapsing right in front of you while dancing. Although the drugs changed, the philosophy of trade didn't. And most of the crowd were partying hard and having a great time. Trade was getting busier and more well-known, and the city was growing busier alongside it. At the same time, the area of Clerkenwell was evolving, too. Cranes were popping up, and the area was undergoing a huge amount of redevelopment. Those derelict buildings that offered affordable rent were slowly getting demolished and surely becoming luxury condos and slick offices for city workers. This was bad news for the nightclub Turnmills. Here's Kate again.
3: Trade's final party at Turnmills in 2008 came at quite a tragic time for London nightlife, really. And key clubs like The End and a trio of clubs in King's Cross called The Key, The Cross and Canvas, formerly Bagley's, they were all shutting. Places were suffering from gentrification, redevelopment. They were having to sell up or they were losing their licences.
1: Unfortunately, Many clubs are in areas of cities that are more affordable. And as those areas become developed, the clubs can go away too. Trade at Turnmills announced it would host its last night in the spring of 2008.
3: And turnmill shutting and the end of trade felt like the final nail in the coffin for all weekend
1: hedonism, really. Turnmills closed due to the expiration of the lease on the building. It was demolished and made way for a sparkling new office building. The nightlife faithful, clubbers and promoters, didn't want to see it go, but there was nothing they could do. Kate mentioned how that was the final nail in the coffin of all weekend hedonism, and that's exactly how DJ E&M remembers it.
4: To be quite honest, it was pure escapism. It was just basically there to have a good time in the music.
1: When trade started back in 1990, the AIDS crisis and a hostile government was all looming in the backdrop. People went to trade to find community and happiness. Ian said to me it was all about a celebration.
4: i lost loads of friends over the years and everything. So, you know, but you don't think about it too much. Otherwise, you end up <laughs> going a bit crappy about it. You know, you celebrate the people's life if they've got and that's what we do. And that's what we've always done.
1: Lawrence Malice was keen to celebrate, and he was always ahead of the curve. He was working on something else for the community of clubbers he so brilliantly served. In 1997, before turnmills closed, he purchased an old Victorian warehouse building.
3: The Egg is the club in King's Cross that Lawrence opened in 2003.
1: The name Egg is a reference to rebirth.
3: And it really continued the spirit of trade in many ways. Events that go on and on way into the next day, a really interesting mix of people across nationalities and sexual identity. You know, culture shifts and moves on, especially clubbing, but trade's legacy absolutely deserves to be celebrated. And I think that when it comes to any sort of generational shift in culture, there's a tendency to forget our elders and what's laid the groundwork. But I think especially in the LGBTQI plus community, there's a real
1: desire to celebrate what's come before. Moving to music is not only about celebration, hedonism, or bringing a wide variety of people together. It's also about honoring the past and the moments you have with those closest to you.
2: We forget how homophobic society was at the time. We forget even like, you know, Section 28, the age of consent, forget civil partnerships or marriage. That wasn't even on the cards. I never thought that would happen.
1: When trade closed, Uday never went to trade's anniversary parties because he wanted to remember trade for what it was.
2: It won't be the same. It's in a different venue. And, you know, it might be disappointing.
1: But as the years passed, Uday had time to reflect on his moments at Trade, especially during COVID-19, when the respiratory disease changed the lives of so many and changed the way we partied and looked at club culture, a culture that was on its knees, brought on by the pandemic. He decided to go to Trade's 30-year anniversary party, which was delayed by a year because of COVID.
2: It was really, really amazing, but I'm so glad I went to this one because I saw quite a few people that I haven't seen in 30 years. So many unforgettable
1: personalities Uday thought he'd never see again.
2: There were all these like characters in the club who, in my head, they only existed in the club. Like When I left, they were turned off and put back in their box because they, they couldn't obviously exist in everyday life or in daylight. They were just characters in the club. But it was fun to see all of them. It was fun to see everyone. And the
1: music hit Uday as it always did, straight through the heart.
2: They were playing all the old school, like from the early nineties trade classics. And we were all there and like, there were certain songs that came on and everybody just went mental. And it was just reminded me of what it felt like. And I think I kind of missed that. Uday talked
1: about how formative trade was for him as a young gay man expressing his identity. Kate said Lawrence made space for a community under attack politically and healthwise susie shared how her career trajectory was only possible due to the people she met at trade and it's the relevant words of ian m that still rings in my head you'd party to escape and to celebrate that is what trade provided an everyday escape to dance the night away In the next episode, we're going to make our way over to Chicago to uncover the birth of house music at the two legendary clubs where it all began, the Warehouse and the Music Box. The History of the World's Greatest Nightclubs is produced by Neon Hum Media for London Audio and iHeartRadio. For London Audio, our executive producers are Paris Hilton, Bruce Robertson, and Bruce Gersh. The executive producer for Neon Hum is Jonathan Hirsch. Our producer is Rufaro Faith Mazarura. Our series producer is Crystal Genesis. Navani Otero and Liz Sanchez are our associate producers. Our editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager and Alexis Martinez is our production coordinator. This episode was fact-checked by Sarah Avery. Theme and original music by Asha Ivanovich. Our sound design engineers are Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. I'm your host, Ultra Nate, and we'll see you next time on the history of the world's greatest nightclubs.